feel like my day-to-day life is so boring. Like I couldn't really give a good, uh, a good real life story, but it's wake up, uh, work on Laravel for eight hours and then, uh, hang out with my family basically. <laughs> Well, you guys want to start by talking about the pipeline that's that's kind of new to Laravel five coming out. Yeah, so uh, pipeline is a it's a new component, like a standalone component out on the um, GitHub.com slash Illuminate um, organization. But basically, pipeline is just um, the whole Laravel five middleware thing where you have a request that passes through layers of middleware and then hits the application. That logic of building that, um, I call it like an onion, so to speak, those layers of middleware, that used to be like in the routing component, but all, all pipeline really is is pulling that out into its own component so that you can use that for anything, not just middleware, because the thought process behind that um, ties into some of the Laravel 5 command stuff where sometimes you see people when they do a command bus or something, they want to decorate their command bus with some kind of other functionality. <clears throat> The most used example is like logging or database transactions or something like that. So with pipeline, that's that's used by the routing class itself to do the middleware stuff that uses the pipeline component. But you can also use the pipeline for anything else you want. And command bus is um, just one thing you might want to use it for. So you could say, I want to make a pipeline that passes this command through these classes and then dispatches it to the handler or whatever. So it's just a really easy way and a really fluent interface for defining that kind of um, onion of a of an object, basically. So Taylor, um, does this is this going to like ship built into Laravel five? You said it's a standalone component. I assume it's still coming with the framework. Yeah, it comes with the framework because that the routing component uses it to do all the middleware stuff. So the routing component internally, like if you go into the router class, you'll see where it actually says, like, send the request through these middleware and then call the appropriate controller. So even if you never use the Laravel 5 command stuff, you're actually still using the pipeline every time a request comes into Laravel because that's what passes the request through all the middleware. So... Jeffrey, when Taylor's talking about command stuff and handler stuff, what, what does that really mean? All right, so when you hear the word command, think of that as uh, some kind of instruction, and it would represent uh, any kind of instruction for the application that you're building. So like the, the generic one we always use is uh, register user. That would be an instruction. A user wants to register, so your application sends a command, and you might call it register user command or register user or whatever naming convention you want. In its purest form, a command would be just something like a DTO. It just contains data, but it it has a good name that signals what your application does. And that's sort of one of the, the side effects. One of the benefits to this approach is that when you look at the folder structure of your, for your project, it actually describes what your application does. And this is something like, I think it was Uncle Bob. He talks about this a lot. He has a, a very popular uh, presentation. I think it was called Architecture, the Lost Years or something. Anyways, and basically what he talks about there is, like, if you take any kind of, he was talking about Rails in this case, if you take any kind of Rails application and look at it, no matter what the application does, you don't really get any idea about that when you look at the folder structure. All you see is Rails. So you see models and controllers, but you don't just get any idea of what the application does. So with this approach, your folder structure and the files in it actually give you an indication of what your app does. So anyways, that would be a command. A DTO just contains data. And then using something like a command bus, and like command bus, it's so obvious to me now what it is. But when I was first learning about this stuff, I just didn't get it. Because like the basic idea of a command bus is like think of it literally like a bus. You give it your command. And the command bus figures out where to send it. So where it will send is usually some kind of like handler class. So this is hard to explain. Yeah, it is kind of audio. tough. When I think of a bus, I think of like a hardware bus where you you need data to get from one component to another. And the bus is more like a mechanism through which it travels. So uh, there's been this concept of a service bus, et cetera, out for, for a little while. But I think it's kind of 
as a concept, as a term, bus is kind of becoming more popular now because so many people have been talking about commands and stuff lately. Right, right, exactly. So it may be useful. Go ahead. It may be useful to talk a little bit about why even have commands in Laravel 5. Yeah, that's what I want to, that's what I want to know because, like, let's say I have um, a simple app. It's, it's, so basically I have forms that need to be stored in the database and then in the back end I can look at that data and stuff like that. So what I do is I have these controllers and I have these methods. There's get and post. I show the forms with templates and then I take the data in and I store that data with my models to the database. Now what do you, what are you asking me to change about my Laravel app when I upgrade to Laravel 5? I would say nothing. Personally. If, if we're talking about just, I mean, it sounds like you're describing a, a basic CRUD app. And in that case, I'd say, like, don't use commands or handlers at all. Like, period. The thing, would, the, go ahead, Taylor. The thing with commands and handlers in Laravel 5 is I think it, it makes more sense if you understand, like, where it's coming from. So with Laravel 4, um, we have events and queue jobs, right? And with Laravel 5, the whole we moved to this new folder structure to kind of give people um, a more robust structure out of the box, and there's kind of a few things about it that were still kind of nagging at me. And one of those was, where do you put uh, your queue jobs and where do you put your event handlers and stuff? And so that that led to another another issue that I've that's bugged me for a while is event handlers and queue jobs had different ways of accepting arguments and. Um, this doesn't sound like I'm talking about commands now, but it's going to all lead up to commands. And with event listeners, you get a just a dynamic list of arguments passed into the handler. So it's event listen, and then you might have, you know, like dollar sign user, dollar sign invoice, dollar sign whatever, just listed out into the handler. With queue jobs, you got just a data argument, just a data array. So those were two different signatures and they felt like they should be more similar. And so I kind of got to thinking it would be cool if we could pass objects into these things instead of basically strings and arrays of arrays of data. So um, that led me to build the event object thing where you can say event fire new user has registered event or whatever. And then the same thing with queue jobs where you could pass an object like Q push new create server, like if I'm in a Laravel Forge context. Well, the thing with queue jobs is when you talk about commands and queues, the they're very similar. So like Laravel 4 had a synchronous queue driver which immediately executed the job. Well, that's very, very similar to a command bus. Like it's almost identical where you push out a job and it's immediately executed by the bus. Or it could be delayed and put on a queue. And so that kind of got me thinking, huh, these are really almost the exact same concept. So what if we could combine this type of command bus that people are using in PHP and we could also really use it for queues as well. So the commands folder in Laravel is not just for um, it's not just for synchronous jobs that you put on a command bus. It's also for your queue jobs, which would be very similar to the queue jobs in Laravel 4, just a just kind of a new way to write those. So it's possible that you could use that commands folder in Laravel 5 and never be doing anything really with a command bus. Maybe you're only using it for your queue jobs or the other way around. Maybe you're only using it for commands and no queue jobs and a mix of both. So it really wasn't a thing where you set out saying, oh, I want to put a command bus in Laravel. It's more like examining some inconsistencies in Laravel's API in terms of the way things are handled across queue jobs and events and all that, and then unifying it to try to make it really cohesive so that it's very um, intuitive. And the command bus kind of just was a byproduct of that. So that that doesn't necessarily clarify to me why I might actually use something like that. So if I have my controller method and I'm you know sending the t- I have sending out the template and getting back the form response and doing all that stuff, uh, when would I want to use commands? What's the point of actually using them? Well, there's really a couple of benefits. One is um, you they're very reusable and they're they're disconnected from HTTP as a protocol where whereas um, controllers are very are usually pretty tightly coupled to HTTP in terms of the fact that they receive a request. They usually work with input data from the incoming request. And if you have all your logic in that controller, 
it can be more difficult to, well, it might even be impossible to reuse that logic from other places. And it's usually more difficult to test because you have to kind of mock out a whole framework response or request response lifecycle just to test this one functionality. So that if you can encapsulate this task in a command, take, for example, like purchasing a podcast or something, which I use to my screencast, if you can encapsulate in that command, it's very easy for you to reuse it from any point in your application. And uh, and it's also very it's easier to test because you can just create a new command and pass in arguments without worrying about HTTP request or calling a controller or any of that. So it's a little bit simpler setup there. Now, is there a time um, like Jeffrey? Can you think of a time when you specifically wouldn't want to go through this trouble? My view is like for for simple projects, I think you're overcomplicating it. If you know, like you were talking about for a, for a simple kind of CRUD app where you have some forms, it's like, do you really need this? Even if you do store this stuff within your controller, is anything really going to happen there? I feel like you need to be able to fight for the need to have a setup like this. So, like w- when Taylor was working on this, we talked about this a lot. One of the the worries that I had a lot was that everyone was just going to take their CRUD thinking and translate it to 50 different files for create post, update post, delete post, you know, things like that. And then before you know it, Laravel, that was which was so easy to use, people are creating like 100 different files to create a basic blog. So that's always been my concern. You have to be able to fight for why you need to use this approach and why it's preferable to maybe a more simple approach. And it's, it's hard to... It's hard to answer that for people because they have to make up their own mind on how big their project is. Does it warrant being extracted to a command? Does this logic actually warrant being in a, a handler class? And that's going to be different for everyone. It kind of well, sounds like from what you guys are saying that if you need to execute the same code that you have in a controller method from another part of your application, that might be a good time to abstract that into a command so that you can just execute the command from the controller or from another spot in your app. Right. Yeah, and I think it's important also to remember that you don't necessarily have to say, I'm going to do one or the other exclusively for the same app. Like you could have, um, you could have a lot of actions that maybe you don't have commands for, or maybe you just do something right in the controller, and then maybe you have five or six actions that are complicated enough to where a command you feel like is benefiting you by there's quite a bit of things that need to happen. Maybe you need to interact with several other systems, maybe even outside systems, um, or APIs or Stripe, and you need to raise some events. And maybe then you're in the situation where this makes more sense as a command. And it's not like you have to go all in one or the other for one app. Like every app either has to have all commands or all logic wherever else in the controller or whatever. So you can kind of mix and match too. And I actually did that with validation as well on a recent Laravel 5 app where I actually used the form request thing like twice in the whole project. And then the rest of the time I just did like really simple validation of the controller. So you don't have to really put all your eggs in one basket. You can kind of do what makes sense for each particular action. Have you heard like, so I've had a couple people come to me and talk about how on podcasts or blogs or IRC, I talk about certain patterns or certain ways of doing things that some people um, tend to feel is maybe a bit much for their use case, which, you know, when we're talking about the, the command bus or domain events or, you know, any number of these things, I can definitely see that, okay, for a large portion of the industry, this stuff might be, you know, overkill. But at the same time, when things start to get more complex, you got to do something to deal with that complexity, right? But I've had a lot of people come to me and say, you know, I've, I've seen people start to kind of add a, a lot of extra abstraction and a lot of extra in, indirection into their applications just because they're starting to get the idea that this is what professional developers are supposed to do, even if the application that they're working on doesn't necessarily warrant that. Have you seen or heard anything like that? Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, it does happen. It's a hard it's a hard topic because I, I saw this happen before I was even in PHP, you know, where you get excited about new ideas, you know, and you want to apply them. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. And it's usually only really in hindsight that you see can see that any something was like overcomplicated. You know what I mean? You probably don't see that like while you're building it necessarily because it all feels justified in a way. And also just the basic idea, like. Okay, so many of these patterns and ideas came about 
specifically because people were building very large applications. They hit these hurdles and then they decided, oh, actually, if we had done this, it would have been a lot better. But all of that is with the assumption that you're building a very, very, very large app. So I think it can be frustrating for people sometimes because these guys work on these patterns and they advertise them on Twitter. But maybe the idea that these are meant for specific use cases doesn't come through well enough. So the person building the application that has only 4,000 lines of code suddenly thinks that unless they're actually using a command bus and they're using all these handlers and all of these these abstract ideas, unless they're doing that, they're not actually being professional. They're being hacks. I think there's some ambiguity where what defines small, medium, and large apps. Yeah, right. And that's always that that hasn't been really clearly defined. So I think some things are a little fuzzy there. Like for some people, a small app, you know, if you're a consultant in an enterprise sector, a small app might be a hundred thousand lines of code. Whereas for um, you know a smaller business, a, a small app might only be a few thousand lines of code, and a large app might be fifteen thousand lines of code. You know, so it's it's a little tough to communicate where. You should use commands in complex or large situations um, because those that size is not very clearly defined. But for commands in particular, it's it's maybe not as hard as like a whole application architecture in terms of how you want to set things up because it's 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 obvious when you have a lot going on in your controller and it's um, a little bit more objective to determine rather than talking about like whole lines of code count for a whole project. So usually when you get, you know, four or five things happening in a controller, I think you could benefit from extracting that into a um, into a command of some sort. But then I think people think, well, why don't you just extract that to a general service class? And that was kind of what people evangelized yeah. a, a few years ago. What's wrong with just referencing a service? And, you know, so it's it's hard to explain, like, well, in these situations, maybe that would be appropriate. I think there's plenty of cases yeah. where just kind of deferring to a little service class is fine. That's all you need. Yeah, it's, really, in other the, cases, it's really the same thing. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. But the thing I like about commands is that they can go through that pipeline, right, which can be kind of composed to do various things. So I think that the service class, to me, is kind it, and I don't mean any service, you know, I don't mean any application service, you know, uh, I think that specifically the kind of thing you would call from your controller to maybe create a member of your, of your app or something like that. I think that for me, I would choose commands any time over that because it's just as easy to build, but then I have the added option of sending it through the pipeline. So if somebody says to me, I need an activity log of everything that, that a user does, I can just pop a, a logging command bus onto that pipeline and I, and I almost get that for free, whereas doing it with a service class would be so much harder. So in this specific case, to me, that is, it's, it's, it's almost like I replace the, the use of the service class with the commands. But uh, back to the, the, the note about the size of the app, I think that a better metric is not necessarily the size of the app, but more what do these uh, the number of intentions. Yeah, what do these technologies do for you, and why do you need them? Right. So if you're if you're doing a CRUD app specifically, if you're mapping forms to the database, no matter how complicated those forms are, there's going to be a specific kind of specific kind of tools that are really good at working with that. But if you're doing something like working for a healthcare company that has a lot of rules about how things are done, if you're working for like insurance companies, that kind of stuff, then you have to kind of use different approaches to kind of keep things maintainable. So to me, I think that we have an obligation not to just see this thing and think, oh, this is probably a good way of doing things. Oh, that sounds really cool. But to actually say objectively, why does this make the app better before we even consider adding it? And if we can't, if we can't prove to people, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that, hey, this makes a lot of sense, then maybe, maybe we just don't go forward with it. Yeah, and that's pretty good life advice, really. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, if anybody, if you are listening and you're interested in the command bus, we had a talk on the Dev Discussions podcast about now we're on the command bus alone, so you might be interested in that. Let's see, guys, what else we got? Do you want to talk a little bit, Taylor, about what package development is like in Laravel 5? 
Yeah, so this is something that's come up a lot recently with package development, and um, there are some uh, there are some changes in Laravel five, but they're not too bad. So one difference is um, config handling in Laravel five is much simpler, both at the application level and at the package level. So, and the difference differences are you don't have a cascading type of file system in your config directory. You just have one level, which is just all your typical configuration files like session and queue and all of that. And then if you want to change one of those for an environment, <coughs> you just set a normal environment variable using the um, the dot, dot m for dot env library that we're using from Vance Lucas. So um, and then you can override various things. So, and, and Laravel 5 comes with a with an example environment file to kind of show you how that works. Now, with package development, it used to be that we would export package configuration files into the application configuration directory. And that um, that is not entirely desirable. One, it's sort of confusing in the way that, like, your directory structure looks something like app, config, packages, local, vendor package name, package name, and then finally your config file. It's like seven folders deep. So, And then there's also an issue of if a package maintainer adds a new configuration object, how do you export that out to the app? Because you can't overwrite the file because it could have already been modified. So you're really stuck there. So really all of that needs to be just kind of gutted and streamlined. And in Laravel 5, all you do is just set the configuration right in your package service provider. So you can just call config set or whatever and give it the array of configura- configuration options you have. And then in the developer or in the in the app, in the, the end users app, there is a config service provider where you can just override any options, either entire sets of options or just one individual option or whatever you want to do. And that will override any configuration that was set in the package because that service provider is loaded after um, in your in your service provider array. It's at the end. Basically, it's loaded after all the other package service providers. Um, so that's basically how config works. Now, views and um, translation files work exactly the same way where they're kind of cascading. And I, I'm assuming there will be some mechanism to cherry pick views out of a package to override and all that. Um, that's kind of what I'm working on today. But <clears throat> the, the, all of that stuff is basically the same. The, the real difference is the configuration. Um, but really, I think it's going to be simpler at the end of the day. Cool. Do you want to talk a little bit about publishing assets? Yeah. So publishing assets is it's not my favorite part of the framework because we have about four or five commands to do essentially the same thing, and it feels like that could all be much cleaner. And I'm not totally sure what the answer is to that. I'm thinking about that some day today, but there are several possibilities. So, like, the issue is we have, like, asset publish, view publish, lang publish, migrate publish, all kinds of pu- other published commands. And it just feels really silly. So... I want to come up with some way to either avoid that altogether or maybe just have one published command that's quite a bit smarter um, than having six or seven commands that do the same thing. But that's all kind of um, – that's really all kind of in the work still. And there there are some people that are working at this, like at the PHP level and not really at the framework level. So there's this project called Pulley PHP, P-U-L-I. Uh, PHP, which is kind of trying to solve this issue of package resources in a framework agnostic way so that you define like a pulley.json file with paths to your views and um, even like JavaScript or, or CSS assets. And then in the application end users uh, root directory, they can define a pulley.json that overrides uh, the paths to those things. So that that project is not stable yet, but I would like to see that gain adoption in the Laravel package space when it does go stable because it's a clean and standardized way to do this across not just Laravel but other kinds of projects and I think would be pretty beneficial and would just take kind of the load off of Laravel and having to kind of maintain this package uh, development ecosystem. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of tough. I don't actually personally use any packages that have a lot of assets, although configuration files, of course, yeah. come into play. Yeah, I don't either. I don't use any packages that have their own views or CSS or any of that. 
But uh, there's a couple packages out there, like the Laravel debug bar is one that it puts like a little debug bar at the bottom of your browser window or whatever, and it shows you like queries that you've run and log log entries and stuff. And of course, that exports its own um, config and JS and maybe even views. So I think that's one of the ones that's kind of more uh, people have been asking me about recently. So yeah. That makes sense. I can see how that can be really useful for just like profiling the number of queries on a page, et cetera, before you launch it, that kind of thing. Right. So on, on kind of a different note, have you been playing with anything fun lately, Jeffrey? Uh, yeah. What, what I've been working on the last week or so, I've been doing a lot of Bahat work lately. And especially with Laravel 5, like it gets kind of confusing. Like, Sean, you're using Bahat, right? Yeah. It's like my favorite thing. I, I like it so much more in PHP spec even now. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's really great. It, it's hard because like people always want to know, do you use Behat or Codeception? And it's like they're both kind of cool. It just sort of depends on what you're working on and and what feels better to you. But anyways, uh, Laravel five and Behat is kind of tricky. There's lots of little things where it's like, well, how do I do that? For example, if if you're writing a functional test with Behat, how do you use a custom environment file? Right. And that's always been kind of like weird with with the new setup is you have your .env file, and then on your production end, you would create another one for your production settings. But that doesn't really talk about, like, what about testing? Well, for PHP unit, within the phpunit.xml file, Taylor sets it there. But then what about, like, if you need something special for PHP spec or Codeception or Behat, how are you supposed to hook into that? So, um... As it turns out, Taylor ended up adding like a special method. It's something like app load environment from or something. And then you specify the file name. But you still have to figure out like, okay, where do I do that? And then also, like if you're writing a test that uses something like um, Goot, well, you might need a special host, uh, maybe like custom domain so that you can figure out, oh, they're, they're doing an acceptance test. In that case, I need to write this code that changes the environment file, basically, or, or overrides it. And all of this stuff just gets kind of confusing. So um, in the last week, I've been—I actually already released it a couple days ago. There's a new uh, Behat extension specifically for Laravel. So there's one for Symphony, and now there's one for Laravel. And basically, it just kind of normalizes all of this stuff. So you Wait. install it. Go ahead. Wait a minute. You're saying that if I'm doing a web driver test, you have a way to manage the, the configure or the environment? Anything that would be JavaScript. Uh, Anything that wouldn't require JavaScript. Oh, so if you're doing cool. a Selenium test, that's different because it's actually going through a real browser, and you'll have to figure that out. But for anything that doesn't require JavaScript, now it's so much easier. You just pull in the extension, and then basically you're all set to go. And even better, it uses the, the browser kit driver, so it's not using anything like Goot. So it doesn't require any host to even be set up. It just goes directly through the... Um, goes through the HTTP kernel interface. So the advantage to that is it's so much faster. Right. So you can do your, your UI tests, and it'll be significantly faster than if you were using one of the other traditional drivers. So um, that's already out. There's there's a video on it at Laracast. I think it's called Laravel and Behat or BFFs or something stupid like that. <laughs> but yeah, like for anyone listening, go have a watch. Like I think you're going to like it. It's so much easier than it was before. So you have all these benefits like, the environment will automatically be set up for you. You'll immediately have access to Laravel within your feature context. There are traits you can pull in. So, for example, if you want to uh, use database transactions for your tests, so like for each scenario, start up a database transaction, and then when the scenario is over, just roll it all back to reset your, your database um, environment. Uh, you just pull in a trait and you're done. All of that stuff just comes out of the box. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's already out. Take a look at it. Play around with it. And uh, if people were kind of afraid of Behat before, this might help a little bit. It's not nearly as daunting as some of these tricky things were before. Yeah, I, I really love Behat. And I, I wouldn't use any of its competitors, basically, at all now that I've learned it thoroughly. It's mm -hmm. really changed the way I've, I've worked with my um, code. It's just fantastic. Did you decide you didn't like Codeception? I know you used that at one point. What <laughs> yeah. changed? Well, I'm curious. yeah, I, at some point in time, I stopped focusing so hard on testing because I, I, it kind of clicked, you know, and it was a little bit easier and I could see it from a better perspective. And at that point in time, I started getting more into business and business communication. So I started focusing more on BDD and making sure that 
so my goal is to never deliver the wrong product again, which has happened in my past, right? Where I get a list of specs from somebody who, you know, they went through a lot of trouble to try to get these specs from the client and I code to these specs and then I deliver the code and everybody thought that we kind of nailed it. But then the client comes back and says, this is not what we wanted. And it's, it's really frustrating to me. It's a big, big problem. So I stopped working on the kind of harder skills of programming, started working on the softer skills. And I found that language started to become increasingly important to me and talking, um, with the, with the, the business and, and figuring out things, writing down these tests in, in really good language. Like when, when I'm writing my Gherkin tests, they read as if you're describing the company's business model and not their web page. Like I'm not talking about pages or URLs or endpoints right. or data. And so I'm, I'm super obsessed with this right now and I've seen some really good uh, results from it. And so I'm just going to keep kind of going down this road. But when it comes to this, BHAT is like the best tool on the market. Basically, nobody but PHP has BHAT. And BHAT is the only one of these acceptance testing tools that allows you to have multiple contexts, really, for uh, for the same feature. And so to yeah, me, it cool. just kind of blows my mind. And, and it changes the way I work with it. And I think that Everset is, is he's kind of like leading the field now in, in some capacity and I'm really excited to see what he does next because this has been like a real renaissance kind of for me of uh, of having more success as a developer, of having fewer uh, you know bad things happen when we thought we were just doing a great job. Yeah, yeah. The multiple feature context especially is pretty cool. Like for for anyone listening who doesn't quite understand what that means, well, like before, sort of the recommended advice was when you write your Gherkin. Uh, you just sort of describe, like, when I go to this page and I click on this button, then I expect to be redirected back to the home page because I'm not locked in. You know, stuff like that. It's very UI specific. It very much assumes a browser. So that's kind of what we did. And then the problem with that is, like, well, now your feature just assumes a browser. It doesn't, it doesn't even give way for any other entry point. And it doesn't give way for even testing your domain. So if you instead just kind of generalize your feature, so rather than saying when I go to this page and I click that button, you just say uh, when I purchase the product, you know, very general. That's how somebody in your business would actually say it. They would never say when I click on this button. No, they would just say, oh, when I go and I purchase the product, then I expect to get an email and et cetera, et cetera. So what's cool is that if you write your features in that way, very general, well, you could have one feature context that is for your UI. So you would implement each of those steps uh, through the UI. And so you would just say, I click on this button, I go there. But then you could have a whole different feature context that would be uh, testing this from your domain level. So how would that look? And both feature contexts will execute against the same feature. So you can do some really cool and interesting stuff when you approach it from that way. And at least to my understanding, like no one else is doing this. I don't even think you can do this in Cucumber. No, yeah. no, no, no Ruby tools, no Python tools. And those are the ones that I was looking into. Yeah, it's cool. So like, I really like seeing that kind of across the board in the PHP community. We're finally, it always felt like we were behind everyone else. We were, you know, even when we got composer, that was great, but it was like, oh, well, Ruby and Python, they had this stuff for a long time. We're just now catching up. But now it seems like kind of across the board, PHP is starting to lead the way in some areas, which is just pretty exciting, I think. End comment. <laughs> Ten four. <laughs> <laughs> Taylor, what about Laravel going into beta maybe this week? Yeah, you know? that would be nice. Uh, I'm you just working on. Yeah, I'm just working on documentation. I kind of got. I was kind of trying to decide, like, if I want to release the beta before the documentation is done, or if I want to wait until the documentation is done. Um, but I'm, I'm planning on finishing the documentation this week, so either way, should be okay to go out this week, I think. Yeah, because especially if you're shooting for the end of the month, like let's just say January 31st, if you wait too much longer, there won't be much time for a beta. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not too concerned about... Um, I'm not baiting, beta-ing because I'm concerned that there will be bugs because I don't... The Laravel core code base is just hasn't changed enough to introduce radical bugs, and we already have a lot of unit tests. It's more just um, giving people time to look at it and get any kind of, like, last-minute feedback in. 
But I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping to get it out this week, and that should still allow for a couple weeks of um, of people looking through the docs and suggesting things. And if anything, just like, yeah, this was this definitely needs to uh, be improved or something. Then I think there still should be some time for that. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I didn't. I don't want to. I was going to put the beta out sooner, but I I didn't know if it would be like kind of lame because you have the beta, but if you don't have updated docs. Then I don't know. How do you really look through things? But yeah, I wonder what the standard is for stuff like that. When an, it's almost when like a, you could just release docs, <laughs> yeah, and not the beta software at all. Even <laughs> just here's yeah, how here's much. how the API works. Any complaints? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. People have been so involved with Laravel Five though for so long. Like I don't know. I I've already gotten so much feedback throughout the past even four or five months. It's crazy. There are guys who have been updating the the framework and folder structure for the last four months. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> I it. I like to toy around with this stuff, but I, I wasn't building anything in Laravel 5 yet. Some of these guys, like, they're building apps, and every two days they have to go through the, uh, the commit list and manually update all the different changes that you made. So there are people that were, like, getting pissed because the views folder changed to templates, and then back to yeah. views and te- like while you were playing around with it, these guys yeah. are like getting mad. Like you keep changing it. It's like, well, sorry, it's it's not even alpha yet. It just yeah. comes with the territory. Bleeding edge. That's the bleeding edge for sure. But now, like from what I hear you saying, at this point, you can kind of dive in. Yeah, people have been diving in, and I'm not really concerned about that anymore because things are, um, you know, we're pretty much out of time. Even if. Um, even if something did, even if there was some huge change I wanted to make, not that there is, but there wouldn't be time to do it anyway. So, uh, yeah, this week is mainly documentation and, um, you know, getting stuff out. And I think it's really solid. Like I haven't, there's, like I said, there's really nothing that I regret or don't like about, uh, what's come out of Laravel 5. I think it's like a really solid improvement over Laravel 4 in a lot of different ways. I think so too. I think I think there were some things maybe a couple months ago that could have been questionable, like things that were good, but I can understand somebody not liking this. Even things like the annotations, it's like you either yeah. like it or you just decide you don't like it. That's now been ripped out into a third-party package. But then there were other things like, oh, these files are confusing. Do they need to be there in the Laravel Laravel structure? All of that stuff has sort of been taken care of now at this point. So it feels really – like now that I'm using it every day, it feels really good. Yeah. Once you get into it, once you start building an app on it, I think it, you do realize it is quite a bit more streamlined than Laravel 4. I want to just throw a public service announcement in here. Uh, if you're going to use like the Laravel 5, you know, pre-release the the beta or whatever, just lock your composer down to a very specific commit, and then you don't have to keep changing. You can set down an, a specific amount of time it may be in your week to upgrade to the newest release and you don't have to be stuck with some random change you didn't expect it because you composer updated also while i'm thinking of it taylor are you gonna bite the bullet and go to 5.5 as a version requirement or are you gonna Uh, stick with 5.4 for now no i just left it at 5.4 but um you know people will have to upgrade to 5.5 in november because of um symphony 3.0 is definitely going to be 5.5. Um, that's already decided and done. So, um, yeah, you'll have, you know, what is that, 10 extra months, I guess, to uh, to wait. But, yeah, you will have to upgrade this winter. Yeah, from, from a, a Laravel perspective, like, do you have any sort of timetable for 5.1, Laravel 5.1? Do you have it? Set up? Will that just line up with Symphony exactly? Yeah, I think we'll just do uh, we'll do 5.1 still in May because okay. um, it just gets us back on schedule. Even though it, it will be a um, smaller time frame from 5.0 to 5.1 than usual, like I'd rather just get back on schedule so that we can be May and November again. Uh, yeah, because if you wait till November, like that's the whole year basically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. You heard it here first. Laravel six in November. <laughs> for next january once he delays it no no way i gotta do uh laricon stuff between um between laravel 5 release and 5.1 will mainly be uh taking up with laricon stuff i think so what's it been like organizing a conference yourself you're just doing it all yourself right uh not exactly um 
so like one one thing that I tried to figure out off this off the top was it's really helpful if you can have people on the ground in the city you you want to do the conference in. And so uh two of the cities that I've been looking at were uh, Louisville and Chicago and Right now, we're kind of leaning towards Louisville, and the reason for that is Indatus, who is a, a big Laravel supporter, is in Louisville and has basically offered to uh, volunteer people to help do some of these things, like scout out uh, venues, scout out catering, actually physically have gone to the venue, taken pictures, sent them to me, you know, and are basically um, really helping me out a lot. And so that's been very valuable. Now, in terms of... Um, you know, in terms of making all the decisions and, and financing it all up front. Yeah. That's all, um, that's all me basically. Um, as opposed to last year. Yeah. That's what I was wondering for finances. Do you have to put like a massive down payment up front? Yeah. You have to put thousands of dollars down up front. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But, but, um, you know, the venues are pretty good about, uh, the down payments are not, too bad to where it's just prohibitive. And then once you have some ticket revenue coming in, then you can make payments on um, the rest of the amount and the catering and the T-shirts and lanyards and all that, all the rest of the stuff that goes into it. It still sounds like overwhelming for me when you think like we all have daytime jobs. So this is all being done yeah. sort of in addition to that. It's just overwhelming. <sighs> it gets easier, though, and you develop connections that, that make life easier as well. I think for us, sponsorship money pays for all of the upfront stuff that we must pay for. And then after we get the ticket, the ticket money after the event, we can go and pay all the remainder of the, of the cost. So it's kind of like we have this massive preparation phase. Then this really enjoyable, like execution phase where we all just have a really great time. And then afterwards, it's just clean up. You know, it's like financial clean up and getting everything together for your tax administration and everything. And Sean, that's yeah. all like volunteer based, huh? Like, like when you think about it, it's like, okay, well, you need somebody to design the shirts. You need someone to design the website. You need to build the website. You need to all of these little things that have to get done. You need somebody to, to handle all of the videos after the show. Is that volunteer based or do you have to pay people to do that? We pay for every out? bit of it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we do a, a tremendous amount of work, but that, I mean, that's kind of, it's, it's just too much. I, I don't think we could ask. And also, I really want to have a high quality event and have a hand in orchestra or curating the content and, and setting up, uh, choosing the venues and being, Every, you know, having the design kind of flow a certain kind of way because we want it to be kind of, we want the love to shine through, I guess. <laughs> it's a, it's a romantic for me, sorry. Let the love shine through. Yeah. I mean, there are certain ways to run a conference much easier than we run conferences, I think. It's just that I think that Sean and I both set our personal bars really high in terms of like the kind of experience for wanting to provide people at a conference. And so that does bring more work with it and you, and more expenses as well, probably. Whereas if we just, you know, I, like I could rent like a hotel convention center thing and for like a room block rate and probably do things possibly cheaper. But just like the whole feel of it would not be the same, I think, you know. Yeah, something at a hotel. I don't know. <laughs> No, it has to be at, a, at an interesting place. People have to feel comfortable. And, and at the same time, it has to be interesting enough to, like, energize you because you're sitting there and you're listening to the people talk and everything. But there's so much. It just it changes the way you feel to, to choose your venue, to choose your lighting, to kind of find a place that has seats that feel right compared to the stage. There's a lot of. I mean, this year for the upcoming Laracon EU in, in 2015, we've already looked at 12 venues. It's a lot of careful love because, you know, we can't stay in the in the venue that we're at. We're just going to have too many attendees this year. And so, you know, we have to be pushed a little bit out of that comfort zone and find something else that, that works. But there's a lot of details that go into, into creating that atmosphere. You want the, the attendees to feel like it's not too empty so that it doesn't feel like a little bit like lonely and echoey. But uh, it needs to feel full and alive and you need it to be energetic so that you're awake and feel good throughout the day despite you know some of the the fact that you're sitting a lot so i don't know it, there's a lot to go that goes into it and 
It's definitely not cheap. And like Taylor said, it would be very easy to cut costs. But who wants to spend their time making that conference, you know? Yeah. And I would imagine, especially at this point, Laravel's just getting so big. You have to eventually get to a point where you, I guess, assume how many people in, in a perfect world would come to this conference. And anyone above that, I don't know, like, how do you... What happens when 2,000 people want to go to this conference? Well, you don't really want 2,000 people at a conference. Or do you? Do you ever <laughs> want to get so big where, I don't know, it's like you lose a little of the intimacy. But, of course, more people is better. But, I don't know. How do you guys think of that? Could do a conference year-round. <laughs> multiple conferences year-round, I guess. I, I think that's a good point. You could have more conferences more often. And we've toyed with different ideas about having, you know, smaller, much smaller Laracons a couple times a year in different cities like London, you know, somewhere in Italy, that kind of thing. Just here and there, wherever maybe it seems like there's enough people. But I think if you were to have like 2,000 people who want to come to your Laravel conference, it's a really interesting challenge because there's a limited, I think, amount of Laravel content that you could come up with to fill the 10 tracks that you would need. Um, to, to serve that many people, you know what I'm saying? So I think that you could have a lot of interesting framework content, but then you'd have to split up into a whole lot of new, uh, new topic areas too. And, and we never want to have, you know, like all Laravel content because I think that's kind of silly. There's, there's so much other interesting stuff that we can bring at the same time. But I, I don't know. I think at 2000 people, it becomes a completely different game and you have to start right. thinking in new ways. Yeah, the venue we're looking at this year for Laracon in Louisville has a, a maximum capacity of 600, which is, you know, a couple times bigger than either the U.S. or the EU conference venues have been in the past. So I'm interested to see, you know, what the ceiling is in terms of how many tickets we sell this year. Yeah, it'll be exciting, especially compared to the very first one where we were all in a oh, yeah. small building. I think there was maybe... 60 people or 70 i don't remember how many but it was so small back then and it just wasn't that long ago compared to today i know yeah it wasn't very long ago at all yeah it was a good start though it was smart to start at yeah. that size if we feel very confident in the the guest aspect of the podcast we could do like a little closing thing like thanks for listening next week we may have a surprise guest or we're working on surprise guests or send us suggestions for surprise guests or something like yeah, that. Yeah, is that still a thing? Are we going to do that? I, I'd really like to do that, but I reached out yeah. to Graham Campbell and he was kind of like, I don't know, not too amused by me. And he's like, well, I'm really busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, doesn't do, he doesn't do public appearances like that. Oh, that's <laughs> I just got the feeling that I was like, being like rejected, like like I I went and asked Mick Jagger or something to be on, on the podcast, and he was like, "Yeah." People are weird about podcasts. It's like it either doesn't, you know, you don't mind it, or it's terrifying. I've talked to a lot of people; it's completely terrifying to them. Even being on a podcast, let alone speaking on stage, it's just a personality thing. It's also possible he just doesn't like me very much because he he manages like this old pa package I used to. Uh, I used to do, and so maybe he's a little bit frustrated how that worked out. He actually manages a number of packages. Uh, like, so uh, many. He works on Factory Muffin. That It was originally um, made by this guy, Zizako. Zizako. Yeah. You guys know that guy? Yeah. You don't see him much anymore. He used to be very active in the Laravel three times, and he was very active. He did a lot of Rails and PHP stuff, so they always have sort of interesting approaches. But anyways... I haven't heard from him in a long time, and now Graham is taking over that. He's too busy uh, fixing, you know, converting Laravel to PSR2 to bother with podcasts. Is, is that, that a thing? Happen? The pull request is out there, yeah. It's <laughs> funny. If you look at the pull request, like the page can't even load. GitHub yeah, it, free, it freezes freaks up your Chrome. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he has like 50,000 changes or something like that. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That's funny. Yeah. But well, do you think it's going to happen, Taylor? I don't know. Like every time it, it needs rebasing, like – every five minutes because of new stuff coming in. I'm not opposed to it happening. And it's, it's actually really easy to, to recreate the pull request. Cause you know, we just run the converter and it only takes like a few minutes or whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not opposed to it happening. The one issue it does present is basically like any merge we have to do from 4.0 to 5.0 in the future is basically just forget about it. Like we'll just have to do it by hand more or less, just copy stuff over because, it's going to be like a nightmare of merge conflicts. <laughs> yeah, but maybe it's it's now or in the future. It's now or never. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, this is definitely the most opportune time yet to do it. 
we just have to pick like that right moment, like in the next couple of weeks, if we're going to do it to, to do it. And then it is you know. sad sometimes like the, the discussion on the whole discussion on GitHub related to whether Laravel updates the PSR two. There's like hundreds of comments. There's not that many <laughs> comments on the really important stuff in Laravel, but this kind of stupid thing, like, do we put it on this line or that line? There's hundreds of people engaged in that, but we don't yeah, care about read. any of this other stuff. I literally have not even read a single comment in that whole thread. I think it makes a lot of sense to want to conform to a standard. I mean, I don't conform to that standard, but at the same time, I think that it makes sense that yeah. as many as many large systems, large libraries and frameworks try to conform to it as possible. That That, to me... If nothing else, it makes our life easier in the sense that when a pull request comes in that doesn't conform to the standard, we just say this isn't PSR2, and there's no other need for explanation. Yeah. That That is helpful, basically. It does save some time to be able to do that. Especially things as simple as, like, most people use PHP Storm or Sublime these days, but especially in PHP Storm, there's an auto-formatting setting specifically for PSR2. So, like, I've switched over. You hit one keystroke, and you don't even have to look at your file. It's just perfectly formatted for a layer of LPR. So, like, I think there's advantages. I don't care Let that much try. about it. Go ahead. There's also PSR5, which is um, the doc Box. block specification, yeah. which, I mean, that's an, that would create another PSR2-like scenario to where every file would have to be changed. So I think Graham has tried to work that in, even though that PSR is not finalized and could change, which would create another one of these, like, nightmare scenarios and I'm not sure if I would even give on, give in on that one seriously, but um, I think really he's going to try to PSR five yet. Yeah, I is think there he's anything try special to do it. about it? I honestly haven't really looked at it either, so I don't know. But mm. I just know that it's in the process and is coming. Mm. I honestly really just use Doc Blocks for PHP Storm's sake. So yeah. Well, um, I think that we're probably at time now. So done. Dropped. <laughs> Thanks so much for for talking with me, guys. Though, and okay, bye. <laughs> that's just how we're going to end now. <laughs> I'm, we're going to stop that conversation. We cut everything. <laughs> it says okay, bye, and then it drops. Okay, bye.